0: Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Brett Byers, communications manager at the McDonald Laurier Institute, and I'm joined today by Charles Burton, a senior fellow at MLI and a former counselor at the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. Uh, Charles is also the author of our cover issue for our most recent issue of Inside Policy, where we named Chinese President Xi Jinping as our policymaker of the year. Hey, Charles, how are you today?
1: It's good to speak with you.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you on. So Xi Jinping, Policymaker of the Year. MLI has tended to choose Canadian individuals and Canadian institutions for our Policymaker of the Year. For instance, in, in 2018, we selected then Foreign Affairs Minister Chrystia Freeland for the title. Could you just break down a little bit as to why, why MLI has chosen Xi Jinping for this title?
1: Well, I think that certainly we want to look at someone who's had an impact on policy and That's not necessarily a a positive one. And in this case, it seems that Canadian policy domestically and internationally is being very much affected by the Chinese Communist Party's external policy towards Canada, as led by the Chinese Communist Party General Secretary Xi Jinping. And so, of course, we can look objectively at events such as the detention of Michael and. Michael's favor in retaliation for Canada's response to an extradition request for the Huawei CFO, who is alleged to have committed serious crimes of fraud, deceiving um, banks operating in the United States with regard to Huawei's business in Iran, inducing them to violate U.S. sanctions and putting their business in the United States at great risk. And then further retaliation, which the Chinese government imposed on Canada in the area of non-tariff barriers blocking Canadian agricultural exports into China, specifically canola seeds that have been subject to utterly specious um, controls by China on false grounds that our canola seeds contain different uh, fungi and insects in the non-seed portion of our shipments. And there's been an impact on our soybean exports to China. And for a period of of some months, China completely banned all Canadian meat exports into China, also on utterly spurious grounds in retaliation for Canada's holding of of the Huawei CFO pending decision made as to whether she should be extradited to the United States or not. The result was um, costs of billions of dollars to Canadian agricultural producers, putting great pressure on our politicians to concede to the Chinese demand that our government intervene for political reasons into a an extradition process, um, which should be independent of political determinations and determined by um, judicial authorities. And in this case, Ms. Meng's extradition hearing is being overseen by the BC superior court. So, uh, in general, I think that, that the Chinese government has been quite successful in inducing Canadian policymakers to make no effective policy response to the hostage diplomacy as it's put with regard to Kovrigan's favor and to China's gross violations of the rules of fair and reciprocal trade as as dictated by China's um, commitment to the World Trade Organization. Um, so the impact of Xi Jinping has really been in preventing Canada from responding to uh, Chinese outrages against the international rules-based order and um, Canada's principles by... Um, inhibiting our government from doing what we would normally do under such circumstances, which is to make a, a reciprocal uh, response to express our severe dissatisfaction with China's gross violations of international law. So there are a number of things that we could have done, such as uh, putting um, Chinese officials on the Magnitsky list or uh, or inspecting Chinese shipments for fentanyl to slow their trade into Canada, or there have been suggestions that we could legitimately block um, Canadian airspace from Chinese cargo shipments to the United States, which would send out a very strong signal to China. But we haven't done any of it. And I think it's because of very effective um, engagement of the Canadian political and economic elite by the Chinese authorities through a sophisticated program of, of um, what's called United Front Work, which is really about um, China achieving its economic and geostrategic goals in Canada by convincing persons who benefit financially from our relationship with China from agreeing to any action on the part of the government of Canada to pursue security and human rights concerns with China or indeed China's violations of, of international law as I just described. So China I think has given the Canadian authorities and the Canadian businesses that have significant relationships with Chinese communist business networks, an impression that any kind of engagement with China over our non-economic concerns, politically or security, or in terms of China's external behavior, including in the South China Sea or support for rogue regimes in third world countries, that Canada will suffer enormous economic consequences in retaliation. Uh, I, I I do think that the MLI has argued that the importance of the Chinese uh, market to the Canadian economy as a whole has been overemphasized by those elements within Canada that have these kinds of close connections to the Chinese regime under Xi Jinping. um, And that therefore, unless we make the compromises to our commitment to the international rules-based order or to our commitment to democracy, human rights, and the independent judiciary, that the Canadian economy will be devastated. But if you look at it objectively, our total external trade to China is about 4.7 percent of our total external trade whereas we send more than 75 percent of our of our exports to the United States so if Canada was to um, stand up for for uh, Canadian values and Canadian national interests by challenging China even if China engaged in very severe retaliation which would be to the disadvantage of China as well as Canada of course that Canada could readily seek alternative markets elsewhere for the primarily agriculturally based commodities that we engage with China and we essentially export raw materials, minerals, and and things we grow out of the ground um, to, to China and bring in manufactured products, the manufactured products we can obtain elsewhere, but um, primary commodities um, you know, it's a limited supply in the world. So, mm-hmm. if China ceases to source from Canada, then they can source from other nations, and uh, um, and Canada would then see have a market in the places that that uh, previously had exported their limited um, um, quantities of these commodities. So, so the idea that standing up to China is something that will have devastating consequences to Canada and therefore Canada should make compromises to the very values that define our democracy is probably a false assumption. But I think Mr. Xi's, what one might call genius, in uh, his relations with Canada has been to convince Canadian uh, elites otherwise.
0: Yeah, and and I think that's a very good point there, that it seems that uh, China has taken this bilateral bullying approach, whereby they're able to simultaneously bully plenty of medium-sized uh, countries like Canada into submission. It's also something that duan ji Chen touches on in the paper that you referenced about how Canada actually has perhaps more ability than we might think to, to push back against China. And there's evidence that some countries like South Korea and whatnot have successfully been able to push back when China has tried to use these economic coercion levers. Now, uh, one part that I wanted to pull out from what you said, and there was a lot of great material to unpack, but one particular part that stood out to me was how... Canada is silent on issues that it otherwise might be loud on. So, for instance, we can see with the detention of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang how that's quite a gross human rights violation that's occurring right before our eyes, but Canada has remained largely quiet on it, at the same time where we have Michael Kovig and Michael Spavor uh, detained illegitimately in, in China. So I wanted to get you to comment a little bit more on how Canada's supposed policy dog doesn't bark when it comes to China, and and how that might point to things like United Front work and influence operations, sharp power operations from Beijing into Canada. How successful has Beijing's influence been at actually kind of determining our policy outcomes or lack thereof with regards to decision makers in Ottawa as well as our uh, business leaders?
1: Well, I think uh, notably. Uh, successful. And that's really why we see Xi Jinping as the Canadian policymaker of the year. Uh, I mean, certainly uh, there's the cultural genocide in Xinjiang, which has been very well documented by the uh, international press. No one can say that they don't know what's going on in terms of the um, incarceration uh, of uh, Turkic Muslims in China's northwest. There are over a million of them in uh, in these camps at any given time, the purpose of which is to convince uh, primarily Uyghurs, some Kazakhs, to give up their belief in the Islam and um, abandon their traditional identification of themselves as Uyghurs, learn Mandarin Chinese, and, and assimilate into the Chinese Han mainstream. So, the purpose of this program is clear, and the gross violation of international law is also clear. So Canada's lack of response to it, I think is something that history will not judge well. Um, there's also the the case of uh, Hong Kong where we have 300,000 um, Canadian citizens resident where China has been violating its commitment to the joint declaration of uh, 1984 that uh, ensures that Hong Kong will maintain uh, one country, two systems. In other words, it's it's uh, freedom of the press and uh, independence of the judiciary and, and, I wonder, uh,
0: and I, I do want to just uh, pull out one point on that too, that Canada actually was a supporter of that joint declaration. Is that correct?
1: Yes. We were asked by both the government of China and the government of uh, the United Kingdom to endorse the joint declaration when it was lodged with the United Nations. Chinese government now says that that declaration is a historical document of no um uh, meaning today but uh, you know international treaties uh, uh, continue uh, they they don't they don't uh, expire like uh, like cheese in the refrigerator so mm-hmm. you know that that joint declaration is still a canadian government commitment to uphold and britain and china have clearly not been following the terms of the of the joint declaration, and it does have a considerable impact on a very large number of Canadian citizens who live in Hong Kong. But Canada has been quite quiet on that and on other gross human rights violations within within China with regard to other ethnic groups like the Tibetans, the suppression of human rights defending lawyers, violations of China's commitment to the United Nations Convention against torture, it just goes on and on. So in terms of your your larger question as to why, I think that, that we do see that over time, there have been quite a number of influential figures in Canada, including a number of former Politicians who, on retirement, are having lucrative post retirement careers, uh, relying on funds which seem to originate in China in terms of uh, opportunities on boards, uh, business ventures, law firms, and so on. so there does seem to be a, a tacit at least understanding that if a a person who is in a position of authority in Canada uh, does not support policies that that would be hostile to china 's overall geostrategic goals in Canada and economic interests in Canada that a reward will accrue on on retirement so it does seem to have an inhibiting um, influence on uh, Canadian politicians to engage in effective measures to stand up for our rights and maintain um, the integrity of the international Uh, rules-based system. So, you know, this in addition to important economic actors in Canada who have significant relations with Chinese business, who also have considerable ability to lobby uh, at the level of our prime minister's office and the most senior levels of our political decision makers, across all parties, I should say. It's not just associated with one party. That that Canadian policy choices have been inhibited and we are not doing the right thing. And by allowing this to go on, it in fact has a, a corroding effect because, as you know, the longer that Canada does not respond in any meaningful way to the illegal detention and harsh treatment of Michael Kovrick and Michael's favour, the more it emboldens the Chinese government to engage in more of this kind of behaviour and the Canadians who uh, could be seen as complicit in our appeasement of China, start to to look worse and worse, and to 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 try and defend themselves by uh, justifications for these policy measures, which are clearly um, not in Canada's short term, medium, or long term interests. So, it is a, a big problem for Canada, and one which could become a greater problem in the years ahead if uh, the Canadian public does not. Effectively send out a message to our politicians that unless they they start to stand up for Canadian values against these um, outrageous inflictions by the Chinese regime, that they will uh, that this will cause them to suffer at the ballot box. And I think that you know it's right now the Canadian public I think has a high awareness of issues with regard to China. Opinion polls suggest that that uh, the Canadian public does not support. Uh, Chinese state investment in Canada, or um, uh, feels confident that we could engage in any kind of free trade agreement with China that would be of overall benefit to Canada. But uh, there doesn't seem to be sufficient concern that it's translating into an election issue or one which actually will determine um, how people vote. So I think that the next step is to increase this awareness among the public at large and have them challenge the unfortunate situation that, that we're in with regard to compromise of, of our political and economic elites here in Canada.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a very good point, that there has hitherto been a, a kind of multi tradition of weakness toward China, which at perhaps some level might be attributable to naivety or might be attributable to Business interests are not wanting to rock the boat, but as uh, as you and I have uh, written, actually, in in a recent piece that appeared in the in In Inroads Journal, um, this is long past time. We understand quite clearly now at this point that China has revealed its true character to us. They. They don't consider us an equal partner. They consider us a country that can be coerced into into doing what Beijing wants us to do politically. So, with all that in mind, MLI named Xi Jinping as policymaker of the year. To our regret, it was not something we were happy to do. We would have uh, we would have been much happier to have named some Canadian policymaker who has, has stood out for positive reasons. But unfortunately, it could not be neglected. The the amount of sway that um, that President Xi has been able to leverage over Canada. So how could have policymakers responded differently to, to have prevented this conclusion? Or how can they respond differently in the future to either push back from China or to to set ourselves up in a, in a better position so that we can resist more consistently these, these pushes from the Chinese Communist Party to coerce us, as well as how can we, you know, work better with our allies in the in the region and elsewhere to to put up a, a front against China to say if you act uh, belligerently, if you act in a, in a negative fashion, there will be repercussions for it. But we're willing to engage in those areas in which. China is willing to engage in a sort of rules-based uh, fashion. So, uh, do you want to just comment on some of the the ways in which uh, Canadian policymakers should reshape that strategy toward China?
1: Well, I think that you know, obviously, um, many politicians and senior civil servants feel that they've been underpaid when they've been in their public service roles, and so there's a, a natural tendency to hope to make the big bucks after retirement by leveraging um, one's political or civil service career to achieve that. But, uh, you know, and assuming that that, uh, human nature is as it is, I think the most effective means to counter this kind of uh, expectation that if uh, in your public role you don't challenge the People's Republic of China that you you will personally benefit later, is to follow the Australian example of um, addressing this issue straight on through the use of legislation. And Australia does have the uh, Foreign Influence Transparency Act scheme, which um, sheds light on sources of income that former politicians have been able to enjoy Mm -hmm. and I think that uh, you know sunlight is the best disinfectant and Mm -hmm. while people do want to um, see their financial situations maximized to the extent possible uh, they also there are also questions of honor here and people don't want the source of their of their funding if it's coming largely from china to to be known um or or that they could be subject to sanction for uh receiving funds um that for you know which is not justified by by their uh, uh normal service but uh, apparently a payback for for things that they did uh, before they um before they came into uh, a, a retired life And and we have seen, for example, the the former Australian um, Minister of International Trade who negotiated a free trade agreement uh, between China and Australia that uh, in Canada is not highly regarded as one which benefits Australia sufficiently, uh, who subsequently was found to be receiving um, an $880,000 a year Um, private consultancy from a Chinese billionaire Mm. who had, at the same time as uh, this man, Andrew Robb, was in office, um, uh, negotiated a 99-year lease on the Australian port of Darwin. Once the Australian legislation um, came into effect, um, this particular former Australian politician and some others uh, did resign from some positions which uh, we have identified as being associated with the Chinese communist regime. So it seems to be working in Australia. But uh, within Canada, there has been no um, movement on the part of our government to study the Australian legislation and see if we could do something comparable here uh, in Canada. And and I think part of it is based on a, a discourse promoted by um, Xi Jinping, which he defines as the community of the common destiny of mankind, which is that the future of the global community will, will be that the UN and the WTO will lapse into relative irrelevance and that new institutions centered on China will come to the fore on the assumption that the United States is a declining global power, China's on the rise and therefore china will become the dominant economic power on the planet through its belt and road initiative and other alternative institutions like the asian infrastructure investment bank and therefore canada should accept the inevitable and um you know put our put our eggs into the into the china basket and uh, remove them from uh, our dependence on the united states so that discourse it's, of course, uh, an effective discourse that Mr. Xi has been using to legitimate his oppressive uh, authoritarian rule within China and abroad. But it's a discourse which has yet to be proven. Um, and certainly the idea of counting the United States out and China replacing the United States as the sole global superpower is uh, you know, not historically very accurate. But within Canada, we have seen... Um, for example, the Public Policy Forum, who compares the rise of China to the rise of uh, the United States, uh, on the, in the context of the decline of British colonialism. But I think uh, when one looks at the factors in history, there are a lot of other factors involved in uh, the future of of global power and the future of values of liberal democratic values as regulating. Uh, justice and fair and reciprocal relations between nations, and uh, and we shouldn't be buying into this kind of philosophy too soon or seeing our, our um, uh, commitment to liberal democratic values as inhibiting uh, Canada maintaining an important role in a China-dominated future. I think it's too soon to count out the United States, and I think it's too soon to assume that China's rise will continue in a straight-line fashion in the years and decades ahead.
0: Yeah, and it seems, again, that Ch- China has been able to persuade everyone on this bilateral basis, where whereby uh, China is not only able to economically coerce medium-sized countries like Canada, while simultaneously coercing a number of other countries, because we lack the coordination to push back uh, together. Um, but it seems that uh, China has also been able to kind of persuade everyone that it's it's the new superpower on the block and that it's time to go go along with them, uh, you can't beat them, join them, that sort of mentality constantly. However, any reasonable analysis would find that if, if countries like Canada, the United States, Japan are like-minded allies throughout the world, and in particular in the Indo-Pacific region, if we cooperated to push back in those ways where China is violating international rules and norms, then we would actually speak I, I believe quite likely see uh, a very different scenario play out that, that China, while it perhaps containment is out of the question, China can still be to some extent persuaded to pursue better policy that uh, aligns more closely with uh, the international community. Now, I just wanted to get a few more policy thoughts on the table for kind of the new year. Uh, if you were uh, advising the new Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Minister Champagne, about how to reset relations with with China, what would be perhaps the, the three top priorities you would suggest that he pursue? What are what are the three biggest issues on the China file that um, that Canada should be addressing right now?
1: Well, I think certainly, um, you know, the Kovrigan's favor situation has been identified by the government as a priority, although the government doesn't seem to be taking priority action on it. So that I think is fair enough to be in the top three. There's also the question of, um, Huawei, um, the authorization of the installation of 5G technology into the Bell and TELUS systems. And I, I do think that, uh, you know, it would be a grave mistake for Canada to agree to allowing um, a company which is beholden to the Chinese regime to have potential uh, control over critical Canadian infrastructure and potentially the ability to engage in massive data collection for um, Chinese purposes. So I think that that would certainly be something that uh, we should be looking at very carefully and making a determination, hopefully, along with our allies to not install the Huawei 5G into uh, Canadian telecommunications, which in addition to the two factors I just isolated also serves China's geopolitical um, interests because the American government has made it clear that if Canada has Huawei 5G in its telecommunications, that this will impact on the ability of the United States to collaborate with us in the Five Eyes um, intelligence sharing consortium. And so pulling Canada away from that kind of alliance with the United States also serves China's geostrategic interests. Uh, Thirdly, I think the point that you've raised, which is it's really very important that Canada and our allies come up with a common front to define what is acceptable Chinese international behavior with regard to its commitments to the u n and the w t o and to you know um things like the United Nations convention of the law of the sea um, in in the south china sea and and uh and china's role in the Security Council particularly with regard to regimes like uh north Korea and iran that that you know we really have to come up with some institutional um basis to 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 not allow the Chinese government to divide and conquer uh, the Western alliance and middle powers who have so much to lose if uh, Xi Jinping's um, community of the common destiny of mankind actually comes to pass, which would put us in a highly subordinate position to an authoritarian one-party state mm-hmm. whose values are very much at odds with the values of citizenship, um, human rights, and judicial independence. that make countries like Canada and our Western European allies, and for that matter, Japan and, and South Korea, um, great societies and and desirable places for ordinary people to live in, in justice and freedom. So I, I would say those three um, things, uh, the initial questions of the current hostilities with China, we have to do some response. Secondly, we must make the right decision on Huawei and not make a concession on that because of the enormous implications for Canada's strategic future if we make the wrong decision and thirdly um, trying to to develop effective mechanisms of collaboration with like-minded nations to try and bring China back into compliance with the norms of uh, of the global order and uh, hopefully um, you know possibly under a different Chinese regime work productively with China to to resolve the great issues of our day including uh, poverty alleviation economic justice uh, climate change and so on
0: yeah and i think that's really a good point that this is not just to punish china or to to be aggressive uh, against china or to be assertive for assertiveness sake but rather this is something that is to the inherent benefit of canadians uh, as well as to the people of china That this is, uh, you know, encouraging their government to operate within the rules-based international order is is of instrumental benefit to Chinese people who are currently underneath the the Communist Party regime.
1: I quite agree. I think that one cannot associate. Xi Jinping and his regime with the Chinese people as a whole. It's not a government that they have chosen. And I don't think by any means represents the aspirations of people within China or persons of Chinese um, origin who live Mm -hmm. abroad, particularly in Canada.
0: Yeah, and the question of Chinese nationalism and, and Chinese identity are obviously complex questions. But that—that's exactly it. It's not a government they were able to choose, and so we should uh, we should keep that in mind. That, though, that we must separate the government from the people whenever we're speaking of China. Uh, now, one last question while I have you, and. Um, we mentioned co- uh, cooperating with allies, particularly allies in the region. One important election that's coming up, which some Canadians might not be paying close attention to, is the uh, the national elections occurring in Taiwan. Uh, that, that's set to occur on January 11th. Uh, it looks at present that President Tsai Ing-wen is going to continue to, to serve. But uh, obviously, elections are fluid things and that could change at any time. Uh, But with that in mind, do you think that there's any scope for Canada to, you know, selectively re-engage with Taiwan, to to encourage Taiwan's uh, ascension to the CPTPP, or perhaps to encourage Taiwan's participation in international fora, like um, a variety of UN organizations and whatnot? Do you think that that is a method in which not only Canada can respond in, in a way and send a clear signal to Beijing, but also, is this something that would be inherently in Canada's interests anyways?
1: Well, I think certainly when you look at the, um, at the current government of Taiwan, the kinds of values and, and concerns that, Tsai ing government addresses, you know, indigenous rights, uh, gender rights, uh, uh, economic um, fairness, uh, are are quite identical to those values and political priorities of the current Canadian government. So, mm-hmm. we have a lot of basis for commonality uh, with Taiwan. It is, uh, you know, a, a place of, of uh, 23 million population, I believe, as opposed to 1,500 million for China. But on the other hand, it's a democracy and the government of Taiwan is clearly in effective control of that territory. And therefore, I think it's reasonable to assume that Taiwan should have a seat at the table. Um, with regard to uh, serious global issues, including the World Health Organization, um, the International Civil Aviation Organization, and so on, that the idea that you know we have to isolate Taiwan and ignore their their government uh, because China says so is not something that I think um, serves Canadian values of of fairness. Similarly, with um, China's insistence that Canada not engage with the Dalai Lama, I think that uh, we reduce ourselves by allowing a foreign government, particularly uh, Mr. Xi Jinping, to um, dictate uh, with whom Canada will engage and how.
0: Yes, uh, I couldn't agree more. So on that point, thank you very much, Charles, for joining us. For those of you who have not yet read it, Charles Burton has written a fantastic cover piece for our Inside Policy's latest issue, uh, discussing MLI's Policymaker of the Year, Xi Jinping. Thanks again so much, Charles, for joining us.
1: It's been great to speak with you again, Brett. All right, Thanks.